0: Do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum. might be difficult to find just three short chapters. It's between Micah and Habakkuk. The book of Nahum, between Micah and Habakkuk. I'm going to read all of Nahum, chapter 1. Let's pray first. Our God, this is a weighty word that we come to, that we hear from Nahum. Lord, we do pray that we would have the eyes to to see the difficulty of this word, the weightiness of this word, but also the hope contained in it, the hope for all those who value the goodness of God, who find refuge in our God who is good and jealous. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Nahum, chapter 1. An Oracle Concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, They will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, since Nineveh has been on our minds through the book of Jonah in the evening, let's keep it there. For now, the book of Nahum is the other book that is specifically directed to that great city of Assyria. This book is both hard and hopeful. I trust that you noted the difficulty in just this first chapter. These three short chapters are very hard on Nineveh. Now, you might thank me that this this series in Nahum is brief, that I'm preaching only three messages You might thank me because of how hard it is to read some of Nahum's language, especially chapter 2. As we hear Nahum's words, we might actually sympathize a little more with the prophet Jonah. Sometimes we, because we have the hindsight of thousands of years, we look down upon Jonah. Come on, Jonah, what were you thinking? Maybe we have a little sympathy for the man as we consider Nineveh through the book of Nahum. Through the hard prophetic word, however, the ears of God's people hear hope. The end of the first chapter will sound the bell of hope, of good news, of peace. The message this evening is this, that the hard word of God's sure judgment upon evil is God's word of hope to his own. The word of sure judgment is actually a hopeful word for us, his people. Now, most of the first chapter, indeed, all of it, except for verse 15 in English, which happens to be chapter 2, verse 1 in Hebrew. So we really can say all of the first chapter is a hymn. It is a hymn to the Lord. It is a hymn to the judge of all of the earth who will do right. And before we consider this hymn to this judge of all the earth, we need to make note of its context. Remember Jonah's ministry. Jonah was alive and well during the 41-year reign of Jeroboam II. In those days, 793 through 753 B.C., Jonah had prophesied the expansion of the kingdom of Israel in the direction of Nineveh, that cruel enemy nation that that wanted Israel gone. 40 or 50 years later, in 722 B.C., it's an important date for learning our Old Testament history, in 722 B.C., Assyria will conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. Now Nahum, his ministry... He is the other prophet to Nineveh, and he ministers between 663 and 612 B.C. He's in that range, 663 and 612. We know this because of the following. We know the start of this range because Assyria conquers Thebes in 663 B.C., and Nahum mentions this conquest as a past reality in Nahum 3, verse 8. And we know the end of this range because Assyria is conquered in 612 BC by the Medes and the Babylonians. And this is a prophetic word of future judgment. This is not a prophetic word of a past destruction, but of a future one, which means Nahum has to have been written before 612 BC. And so Nahum's prophetic word comes to Nineveh about a century after Jonah's ministry. So we're now a hundred years later after Jonah, and we have to ask ourselves, how has Nineveh fared? How has Nineveh done? Has Nineveh conducted itself as a godly nation? Well, you see in the first chapter, no, Nineveh has not. You'll soon see that Nineveh's, or that Nahum's message is quite different from the message that Jonah brought. In fact, having just studied Jonah, it would not be a stretch to say that if Jonah had to choose between his message and Nahum's message, he would have chosen Nahum's message to deliver. We know that because we see very clearly Jonah's heart in the book of Jonah, that he wanted Nineveh gone. He did not want them to repent. He did not want the compassion of the Lord to fill that nation. He wanted the vengeance of the Lord, to fill the nation, just like Nahum is, pro- is prophesying will happen later on. We see in the verse 1 that this is of Nahum of Elkish. So who was, who was Nahum? He was an Elkishite, which is clear enough, right? He was of Elkish. We all know what that is, right? Actually, scholars are uncertain about what this is and where exactly this place is. But there is a long tradition that began with St. Jerome. And St. Jerome, you might know, is the one who brought us the Latin Vulgate, the Old and New Testament translated into Latin. He began this tradition. He believed that this place, Elkosh, is actually a small village in Galilee in the north. And this location makes sense of the fact that God had preserved some northern territories even though in 722, Assyria had conquered the land as a whole. And if this is accurate, then this means that a little-known prophet from a small remnant is now prophesying to the well-known king in a large capital city of that great city of Assyria. And so what we have here is a little bit of David and Goliath. Nahum versus Nineveh. First 1 begins with the word, Burden. Though you don't see it in the ESV, you have the word an oracle, and that's one way to translate this word, and it is. It's, a, it's an oracle. It's a pronouncement from a prophet here, but it is also a burden. Other minor prophets use this word, like Habakkuk uses this word as well, to speak of his prophetic word. It is a burden. Nahum is carrying a burden. He is carrying a heavy, weighty word of judgment to Nineveh. So what of Nineveh? Well, Nineveh, over the last hundred years, since Jonah's time, had been a growing, mighty force of judgment. And when you read Isaiah chapter 10, you learn the king of Assyria is actually the rod in God's hand to chasten the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria had amassed many lands and had grown in strength with one king after another, They had earned the reputation of being a brutal, violent, and unstoppable force. They were proud. Everyone that got in their way found themselves conquered. Their kings were gods, or so they viewed themselves. Their kings were lions, and their queens lionesses, as they describe. They tore their subjects to pieces. They were brutal. And in Isaiah chapter 10, the Lord says that he will judge Assyria after he has used its king as an instrument, a divine discipline upon Israel. Now why? Why would the Lord do that if he's using the Assyrians to, as the means by which to chasten his own people? Why then would he go back and then judge this instrument, this rod in his hand? And the Lord gives us the answer in Isaiah 10, because in the heart of the king of Assyria, he did not intend to be a willing servant to the Lord. What he cared for was acquiring more and more people, more and more lands. What he cared for was acquiring a name for himself and not glorifying the name of the Lord, and he touched the apple of the Lord's eye, and you don't do that with impunity. Nahum's message could be summarized by Paul's words to the Corinthians, but here to a nation of unbelievers, take heed lest you fall or more simply, you're going down. You're going to fall. That's what we see over and over again in this book, especially in chapter three. Your fall is inevitable. You will not be able to escape it. You are going down. And why? Because Nineveh is godless, yes, and because God is jealous Verse 2 The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. This hymn to God begins with the good truth that the Lord is a jealous God. And his jealousy is seen emphatically here by the threefold emphasis on the word vengeance. You see that, don't you? Avenging God, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. Three times in one verse, Nahum wants you to see that the Lord is jealous, that he is a Lord of vengeance. Now, some Christians will encourage love and forgiveness by citing scripture. They'll say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, which it does. And that's right. We must have that spirit of forgiveness and love, and we must not take vengeance upon ourselves, not put it in our own hands. It is not ours to dispense with. It is the Lord's but some will also then deny this Lord this right of his, saying that for him it's, it's too harsh a picture, that the Lord would be vengeful. That's not the Lord that we serve, we think. He's not a vengeful God. This verse 2 is too Old testament Well, it is in the Old Testament. But there's vengeance in the New Testament as well. And there's grace in the Old why do we balk at divine vengeance when we read episodes of, of, of his vengeance in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that are hard to read? It's not pleasant reading Nahum. You read Nahum, and you don't want to be on the other side, you don't want to be the one to be conquered. It's scary, it's frightening. Why do we balk at divine vengeance? Well, one reason is we are not worshipping the Lord as he has revealed himself to be. Are we willing to shape our minds by what the word of God says the Lord is? Or are we just going to say it's 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 not my view of God that he is thrice vengeful. So I'm not going to believe that about him. Not my God. Well, if it's not your God, that's not the God of the Bible. We worship a version of God. We worship an incomplete view of God if we deny him his vengeance. Now, a related reason is that we think jealousy and vengeance are inherently wrong. And if jealousy and vengeance were inherently wrong, yes, we could not ascribe these of God because there's nothing wrong in God. There's everything right, everything good. He's eternally good. But jealousy is not a bad thing in itself. Vengeance is not a bad thing in itself. What would you call the husband who stands by while his wife is taken away and mistreated? Couldn't this man's soul do with a little or even a lot more jealousy? And what does the Bible say? The Lord calls himself a jealous God. The Lord calls us, his people, his bride. He is our husband, and we are his bride. Surely he cares enough about us, he cares enough about his own glory, that he will be jealous for us, that he will be jealous for his glory, that he will be vengeful when his bride is harmed, when someone goes after his bride, his people. Surely the Lord's jealousy is a good thing. And in our everyday speech, we might speak of a mother's protective ways uh, as just expressions of her being mama bear. You've heard that before, mama bear. I think there's even a, a book, it's like mama bear theology or mama bear podcast, something like that. And when, when Mama Bear's child is harmed, is being bullied, you can, you can really see Mama Bear coming out, can't you? And sometimes, we have to admit, Mama Bear needs to stay in her cage. It's too bear-like. Calm down. The words that every woman loves to hear. But protecting your children can, at times, be a proper expression of righteous jealousy. And Scripture calls us, the children of God. And so we shouldn't marvel when Papa Bear comes out and takes care of business. Indeed, if we want to stick with this bear analogy, Papa Bear might even send two she-bears to maul 42 youths. You might remember that story. People were um, denouncing the prophet Elisha. Go up, old man, go up, old man. And by doing that, they were denouncing the Lord God. And the Lord showed them a lesson by sending, two, by sending two she-bears to maul those children or youths. Now, our Lord is, a, is jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his people. His is a good jealousy. And so his wrath has to be a good wrath. Wrath is the expression of God's jealousy against sin in time. We cannot say that God is eternally wrathful. Okay? Because sin was not in eternity. Do you know that? And we don't have eternal forces, good against evil, and God is wrathful against this eternal evil. No. But God is eternally good. God is eternally just. He is eternally righteous. And wrath is the historical expression of His eternal goodness against sin, against evil. And so His wrath is always a good wrath. And in these verses, verses 2 and 3, we see that God delays this wrath for a time. He is slow to anger. Historically, this wrath was delayed. It was not spent on Nineveh during Jonah's time. And we know that Jonah had a righteous cause, it seemed anyways. He had all the evidence to bring his case against Nineveh to God. See God? See what they're doing? Nineveh didn't have legs to stand on. Nineveh was guilty. It's just that in Jonah's faulty thinking, the Lord isn't only vengeful. He's also compassionate, full of steadfast love and forgiveness. And he is slow to anger. And so we know that God delayed his wrath on Nineveh for a time, even for a hundred years. Even actually before that, as Nineveh was storing up wrath unless they were repented. So this wrath was delayed because Nineveh repented, and so God relented. But Nineveh was unstoppably unrepentant. Nineveh grew stronger and ever sinful. And so the national disease that was Nineveh needed to be burned out. So this delayed wrath eventually is expressed because this wrath has been decreed wrath, and the Lord always carries out all of his decrees. Now we treasure God's faithfulness, don't we? We hold on to the fact that God keeps his promises. He keeps all of his promises. Don't we love that God is trustworthy? Don't we love that God says something and does it, and he will not go back on his word? That he always keeps his promises? Surely we love this. And yet, children, let me ask you this. If your dad promises to spank you if you disobey, Do you want him to keep that promise? The spiritual answer is, yes, I do want him to keep that promise. Assuming dad has a just cause for spanking. And to go a step further, do you thank him afterwards when he did keep his promise? He spanked you. Do you say, dad, you're right. I I was wrong. You told me to do this, and I disobeyed. You kept your promise. I glorify God. I thank the Lord that you have kept your promise and that you have spanked me. Thank you. Now, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's really ought to be. That's what our hearts ought to be. We should thank our God for being faithful to his word. And oftentimes, that means... As Hebrews 12 says, the Lord chastens those whom he loves. Our Father in heaven disciplines us. And it doesn't feel like love, which is what Hebrews says. Feels unpleasant for the time, but it produces godliness. It's actually for our growth, it's a good thing. So, do we value that God keeps his promises? Promises of judgment. But here, again, as a people, we want him to keep his promises of goodness but not of wrath because we think that goodness and wrath are somehow opposites when wrath is really one expression of his goodness. He cannot brook evil. He cannot tolerate wickedness. He must judge it. There is a, do- there is a day fixed, an appointed day of judgment. He will. He must. If he, if he doesn't, he's not the good God that we thought he was. So, Calcified Nineveh is told here that God keeps wrath for his enemies. Yes, he is slow to anger, but that does not mean that he's never angry. Verse 6 assures us that one day his wrath is poured out like fire. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. I think of a volcano. It might lie dormant for years, decades even, but eventually the, the volcano erupts and the fire consumes everyone and everything in its path, the surrounding city. In 1933, J. Gresham Machen delivered a radio address, a radio address called the Christian View of Missions. And in this talk, he spoke about the central elements of a missionary church, that is, the central elements of a church on mission by Christ to proclaim the gospel. And one of those elements is, he says, the clear proclamation of the wrath of God. That's one of the essential elements of the church on mission. You must, if you're a part of a church, you must proclaim the wrath of God. That's what J. Gresimation said in 1933. And he says this, men do not like that doctrine of the wrath of God today. But it is not the historian's business to find what he likes. It is his business to find what was. And every historian must admit that the doctrine of the wrath of God was at the very foundation of the message of the earliest Christian church. The the teaching of the wrath of God is at the foundation of the message of the early church. Can you imagine a radio address today? that highlights the wrath of God. Sure, occasionally there will be Vody Bacham or John MacArthur on TV and you'll have 30 seconds of him being faithful to proclaim the gospel and to speak against sin. But here we have a radio address. And our own mother denomination, the PCUSA, has done everything in her power to... Strip its teach, her teachings of this doctrine of the wrath of God. The wrath of God was satisfied? No, thank you. Not for, the, not for the PCUSA. Not for so many other supposed churches. And say sometimes that we, when we give a witness to the gospel, we don't share this part of the message. But as Major says, it's foundational. We need to proclaim the bad news, the impending destruction on those who do not trust in Christ. And some might say that the Christian church went beyond what Jesus said. They weren't true to the teachings of Christ, they might say. Machen responds to this. If you want the really terrible descriptions of the wrath of God and of the divine retribution for sin in the other world, do not turn to the theologians of the church or even to the Apostle Paul, but turn to the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying, if you really want to read those awful descriptions of the wrath of God, you go to the source, you go to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is, after all, the one who spoke most about the wrath of God. Perhaps it was because he was calling people to find refuge in him when there was time. Now, perhaps, that was why. Look at verse 5. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. And so we read here the response that all should have before this jealous God. The mountains model for all of creation to quake before its creator. The earth exemplifies the soulish heaving that all sinners ought to demonstrate before God. The once solid rock of mountain melts like butter exposed to the sun in a moment. The whole creation groans as it lies flat under the weight of divine vengeance. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger, verse 6 says? And the answer to this question is simple. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody can stand before this indignation. Nobody can endure the heat of this anger. Charles Spurgeon once said, The kindness of a king demands the punishment of those who are guilty. The Lord as a good refuge is not for those for uh, those whom he judges in their own sin. That is, if you remain in your sin, for those who remain in their sin, the Lord is not a good refuge. Escape is only for those who hide themselves in the good, jealous God. All the Assyrian plans to fend off judgment will ultimately fail. That's what he speaks about in verses 9 through 11. Anything you try will fail. The king will plot evil against the Lord, but he will plot in vain. Like a drunk who doesn't have his wits about him, who staggers left and right, and whose mind is clouded with strong drink, the Assyrian warrior will not know up from down. Anyone who opposes the Lord, who is set on vengeance, has no recourse but to be consumed. They who reject the Lord as strong tower will tremble because of the goodness of God. But here's the good news. For those who hide themselves in the mighty fortress as our God, we will see safety and salvation in the goodness of God. The truth is, dear ones, that Nineveh's problem is Israel's promise. All will experience the goodness of God, but not in the same way. Divine goodness is expressed differently based on where you are, in what refuge you are in whom you are, or in whose you are. For some, the goodness of God is going to be a problem. And for others, it is a promise of lasting peace. And we see this hope in the word Nahum. The name of Nahum literally means comfort. And when you, when you read that, and you, if you've read Nahum, you say, what? That seems ironic. Here's a word of comfort. Destruction. Don't really consider those two to go together, comfort and destruction. So then, who's this comfort for? It's not for Nineveh. The Ninevites cannot sing, We are precious in your sight, O God. As verse 14 says, You are vile. The Lord says to the king of Nineveh, You are vile. That might not be the greatest translation. It means you are insignificant. You are not as, as high as you think you are. You're not the top dog. The king of Assyria has no significance. He is too small even to be noticed. And there's a reason the Lord speaks this way to the king of Assyria. This is a blow to the self-deification of the Assyrian kings. They thought they were God's. This is a blow to their pride, just like it was to those who erected the Tower of Babel. Let us build this Tower of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. And the Lord comes down because it's so puny an effort. What is that? Okay. And he crushes it, scatters them. You thought you were high and mighty, but you have been made low. They thought they were gods. But according to the only God that is, this God, this Assyrian God, will be buried in a grave. How ironic, isn't it, for a God to be buried in a grave? I think of one of those Avengers movies when Loki boasts proudly to Hulk, I am a God, you cannot do this, and then Hulk just takes him and hits him back and forth, back and forth, and keeps Loki on the ground, and then he says, puny God. Sorry if you haven't seen that movie. Spoiler. For this worthless counselor, that's what it's called in verse 11, is a son of Belial. And you've heard that word before. You've heard it in the New Testament. It's a word in the Old Testament and New Testament that means a worthless one, a worthless fellow. This worthless counselor is a son of Belial. He is a child of the adversary. And no comfort will be given to him or to any who rage against the Lord. And so there's no comfort for Nineveh But there is comfort for God's prophet, for Nahum. Regardless of the pushback from others, he will find divine refuge, a fitting home. Such is the comfort for all who are faithful ministers of the Word of God. The world might might hate them, but the Lord looks favorably upon their faithful efforts. But who else is this comfort for? Not just for Nahum, who will be vindicated but for God's people who have been afflicted by Nineveh in the 600s. That is, God's people that love the Lord. After all, not every Israelite was truly circumcised in the heart. And this is a circumstantial reason for all the Assyrian domination in the first place. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 722 because Israel was being disobedient to the Lord. They had followed other gods. That was divine chastening. Not everyone who calls himself an Israelite is truly an Israelite. And so, for the idolatrous Israelite, for the one who does not find refuge in the Lord alone, he can expect the same fiery end as Nineveh. But for all those in the north and in the south who know the Lord to be a stronghold in the day of trouble, they shall find him to be the refuge of comfort that they need. But this is also comfort all of God's people everywhere. It's comfort for all who are truly in the Lord. It's for all who find Christ to be the way to the Father, to be the good physician, to be the truth, to be the life, to be the good shepherd, to be our all in all. This is a word of comfort. What this word is saying is evil loses the enemy is destroyed, and those who find refuge in Christ and in Christ alone will always be comforted. Look at verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Do you see the comfort of these good tidings of great joy? Isaiah 52, 7 and 8 is actually being quoted here. Isaiah spoke of the beautiful feet that bear the good news to Jerusalem that Babylon has fallen. And here Nahum takes this word from Isaiah and he applies it to Assyria and he is speaking a word to Judah, you will be comforted. There will be great news that will come to you, that will tell you that Nineveh is done with that the Lord is a refuge, that the Lord is victorious, and you are victorious in the Lord. And so whether it is Assyrian or Babylonian or whatever, the Lord will deliver his people and bring his people the good news, the speedy publication of peace for his glory. But you might have noticed that this passage isn't just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. You might have been first introduced to that phrase from the Apostle Paul himself in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, because Paul quotes Isaiah to speak of the importance and the urgency of gospel preachers. If there is no preaching, then there's no hearing of the gospel. If there's no hearing of the gospel, there is no chance for repenting. If there's no chance for repenting, there is nothing but wrath. It's good news. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings the good news. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I was certainly a preteen. When I was a preteen, I lived in an apartment complex, and my friend and I went over to the mailbox to get our mail. My uh, mom gave me the mail key and said, Michael, go get mail from the mailbox. Now, we lived in an apartment complex, so the the station of mailboxes was about a couple minutes away walking. So we calmly took our time and just walked over there, Just getting the mail, a special privilege to get the mail for mom. She trusted me to do that. Get to the the mailbox and take out the key and, and turn the key into the box, open the box and pull out the stack of mail. And in this, among the stack, was what my friend and I thought was the greatest news to a struggling family. It was a notice that my mom was suddenly given $1 million. Oh, man. What great news that was. I ran as fast as I could. I could not hold on to this long enough. I wanted to tell Mom, Mom, we're going to be all right. You just came into a million dollars, Mom. Oh, But you are much smarter than I was back then. And so you know that there were no million dollars to be had. And it was fake news, as they say. It was a dumb ad. It was trying to, I don't know bamboozle us or something. It was a sham. It was a joke. And that was, that was embarrassing, of course. I say that to say this, two things. The wrath of God, the message of the wrath of God is not a hoax. It is not a joke. It is not fake news. It is a trembling reality. And it should be deeply frightening to all those who are outside Of Christ. And because of this, we should be thankful to the Lord that we were spared this frightening reality to suffer under the wrath of God for all eternity. But I give that illustration also to say this that the grace of God is the real thing. It is not a joke, it's not a hoax, it's not fake news. It's the best news of all the news. And the fastest feet in the world do not do its goodness justice. How beautiful! upon the mountains at the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. So praise the Lord that there have been faithful preachers in your life who preached both wrath and grace. And sing to the Lord because he is righteously indignant. Sing to the Lord because he is a certain refuge to all who flee to him. And praise the Lord for his speedy and satisfying publication of peace. If the munchkins can sing ding dong, the wicked witch is dead, surely we can sing that the Lord is victorious over all his and our enemies. And we are kidding ourselves if we think that we are too spiritual, too New Testamenty to sing of God's jealousy. And sometimes this means that ministers will choose some of those less fun songs to sing. And that's okay. But one song we're going to sing in just a moment blends well, balances well, the, the wrath. Of God and the gospel in Christ alone. So praise God that we can sing, The wrath of God was satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our God, we do think about this weighty word of judgment upon a nation. And we know, Lord, this is representative of the weighty word of judgment upon all those who end up remaining in Adam and do not find themselves in Christ the true and good refuge. Lord, we do pray that our own friends and family members who don't know Jesus will will come to know him to be that good refuge. Help us, Lord, to think well of your jealousy, of your vengeance, not to take it upon ourselves, but to rejoice, to praise you because you satisfy your holy will and your justice. And we are so thankful for all eternity, O God, that you satisfied your wrath that was due us because of our sin, that you were satisfied by the life and the death of Christ and his vindication in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But beautiful news. We thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.